Welcome to Cascades Bible Church. Well, this morning I want us to look uh, at Ephesians chapter 4. So take your copy of God's Word and put your finger in Ephesians chapter 4. And we're looking at verses 20, well, really 17 to 24, but in detail of 20 to 24. And um, it seems as though almost everyone, almost everyone, loves a good makeover show, some kind of uh, television show or program where, uh, you know what I'm talking about, these shows where a guy or a gal who has just the plain haircut, the plain clothes, the, um, uh, the, the, the old glasses from 20 years ago, and they're surprised by their friend or their spouse with a, with a sort of all-expenses-paid personal renovation. We've all seen something like this over the years. Um, these makeover consultants go through their closets, tr- trash all their unflattering clothing uh, that they've been wearing since college, take them to a hairstylist to get a fresh cut, take them shopping for the latest style, and if it's a lady, they'll get set up with you know makeup artists to pull out all the all the stops, all the tricks of the trade to to uh, uh, transform them. And at the end of the show, this average Joe or this plain Jane emerges like a butterfly from its cocoon. Uh, completely transformed into the sharply dressed, perfectly manicured, expertly crafted version of themselves. And everyone oohs and ahs and is, is just kind of blown away by it all. And through the course of the magic of video editing, this metamorphosis takes place before our eyes in 30 minutes or in, in an hour as we watch these shows. And we think to ourselves, this is amazing. The reality is that whatever transformation is taking place when that happens, with hair, makeup, clothing, that kind of thing. At the end of the day, that transformation is strictly external. It is strictly external. Nothing of substance has fundamentally changed. What we're looking at, what we see is temporary. And, and it's external and it's, and it's really vain in the sense of the term. It's just fleeting. What we see on the outside seems so significant. We think, wow, what an incredible transformation. You look at this person, you think it's amazing that some new clothes and a little TLC, how that can just radically change a person's appearance. But the truth is that whatever changes that we see, they are simply on the surface and they don't last. They will not last. The, the show, these shows and, and, and these kind of segments within other shows, they're, they're selling a fantasy. They are promising those involved and those of us who watch a kind of lasting change. They're promising a lasting change that they simply cannot deliver. And that the idea is that it, by changing your hair, changing your makeup, changing your wardrobe, that you can somehow transform your persona. But it's all an illusion. But our text this morning in Ephesians chapter 4 and verses really from 17 all the way down to 32, Paul offers us something that is not an illusion. In in these verses, Paul reveals to us a, a spiritual wardrobe that if we've put it on, will in fact transform us, not externally, but from the inside out. And it will never go out of style because it, it, it will continue on into eternity. Look with me at verse 17. I just want to read these verses and set them before us. In chapter 4, Ephesians 4, verse 17, Paul says, So this I say and affirm together with the Lord, that you no longer walk, just as the Gentiles also walk, in the futility of their mind, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart. And they, having become callous, have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. 
But you did not learn Christ in this way, if indeed you have heard him and have been taught in him, just as the truth is in Jesus, that in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lusts of deceit, and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind and put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. In these verses, Paul is laying out for us essentially a spiritual wardrobe. It's, it's a call to lay aside our old clothing, which is corrupted in accordance with the lusts of deceit, and in, in its place to put on a new spiritual clothing, which has been created in righteousness and in holiness. And this spiritual wardrobe, unlike any physical wardrobe that you would put on or, or, or purchase, transforms us from the inside out, and it will never, it will never go out of style for it endures through eternity. In chapters 4, uh, chapter 4, 17 to 32, all the way down to the end of the chapter in verse 32, Paul is instructing and challenging the reader and us to walk in holiness. We've been made rich in Christ. We, if you look at chapter 1, we, we, see, we see that Paul describes our, our, our eternal inheritance, that we have, he has chosen us before the foundation of the world. He's given us every spiritual blessing, as we prayed earlier, in the heavenly places in Christ. He has, uh, chapter 2 tells us he has set us up, uh, he has raised us up with Christ. He has seated us in the very throne room of heaven as a believer. And now, beginning in chapter 4, all the way to the end of the letter in chapter 6, he's telling us specifically how we are to live up to that inheritance, that high calling which God has given us. And in these last three chapters, he is mostly concerned about our walk. You see it in chapter 4, verse 1, Therefore I, the prison of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called. Verse 17, So I say this and affirm together with the Lord that you walk no longer as the Gentiles also walk. In chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, Be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love, just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God. Uh, in chapter 5, verse 8, he says, um, well, I'm, I'm here. For you were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the, in the Lord. Walk as children of light. Chapter f uh, 5, verse 15, therefore be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise. Sound doctrine, rightly understood and believed, always produces sound living. That's the point. Chapters 1 to 3 are the sound doctrine, and chapters 4 to 6 are instruction in sound living. Paul was concerned about the Ephesians' walk, and we should be concerned about our spiritual walk as well. As believers, this is what we must do. And the reason it's so important is that our walk is a barometer of our souls. It's not for God's sake. He knows what is in us. It is for our sake. Are we alive or dead? Are we sick or well spiritually? Are we weak or strong? Like our, our conduct, our walk will tell us what that is. 
And the Bible makes clear that we are saved by grace and we are saved by through faith in Christ alone. We understand that. Faith alone justifies us, declares us righteous before God. But faith that justifies is never alone. It never operates alone. Saving faith always proves itself by an increasingly sanctified life that is set apart to God. So we need to be watchful over our walk. And so in Ephesians 4, 17 to 32, Paul exhorts God's people to live up to this high calling that we have attained in Christ by walking in holiness. We are a new people. That's what we've been learning in, in Isaiah. We are God's people. And we are, are we have been part, made partakers of his kingdom. We are united in one body under the new banner of the new covenant in the church. A significant, and a significant change in conduct should be taking place as a result of that. There are only two options in this life. You can continue to indulge your sin and live for yourself as the old man in corruption and hopelessness. Or you can put on the righteousness of Christ by faith and live for him as a new man or a new woman in purity and joy and fidelity. But those are the only two options that God gives us in the New Testament. That's it. There is nothing in between. But they have very different outcomes. If you live for yourself, you'll bear the weight of guilt and shoulder the burden of sin's temporal consequences in this life. And you will die in your sins. If you live for Christ, you'll be set free from sin slavery. You'll experience fullness of joy. Not easy life, but fullness of joy in the midst of trials. Beginning now, and that will only increase into endlessly into eternity. And the question is that this whole section is asking, is Paul is saying, which one will you choose? Which one will you walk in? Paul contrasts these two options in 17 to 24. If you look back at verse 17 to 19, Paul exposes to us the foolishness and the futility of the old man that lives for sin and self. And the picture he paints is an ugly one. It's an ugly one of our lives before Christ. And he wants us to consider its ugliness intentionally. Verse 17, so this I say and affirm together with the Lord that you walk no longer as the Gentiles also walk in the futility of their mind. Before Christ, we walked in futility. In other words, emptiness, purposelessness. Before Christ, our minds were unable mentally, spiritually to accomplish the goal for which God created them. He created us to worship him, to glorify him, to honor him. And we can't do that as, as unbelievers. Paul then goes on in verses 18 and 19 to describe for us four images of this old man. He speaks about the hardness of man's heart, our hearts before Christ. If you look at the end of verse 18, we, we were walking in futility because... Verse 18, of the hardness of their heart. This word hardness of the heart, this, this imagery, it pictures a broken bone that's fusing back together and it forms like kind of a callous lump. And then at first that's soft, but over time it hardens. That's, the, that's what he's talking about. It, our, because we are hardened in our sin, in our, in our hearts, the truth can't break through. 
That's how we operated before Christ. He says we were darkened in our understanding. We were darkened in our, in our understanding. That our moral reasoning was completely clouded. It, it, sin was entrenched. There was, there was no uh, digging it out. He says our soul, thirdly, was dead. Right? We are excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is within them. We are dead. Ephesians 2 verse 1, we were wandering in our trespasses and sins. And that all, all of that gave way to utter shamelessness. You see that at the end of verse 19. And they, having become callous, because of the hardness of heart, because of the darkened understanding, because of the deadness of soul, they walk in utter shamelessness, verse 19, having given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. There is no, there is no low that the human heart, apart from Christ, will not sink to. And, and so, after looking then at this gruesome picture of we are reminded just how foolish then and futile our lives are apart from Christ. We are literally, as chapter 2, verse 12 says, without hope and without God in the world. This is the unbelieving life. Living for sin and self may have, and there are our momentary passing pleasures to sin, but it brings eternal pain and futility. And this isn't the last time, 17 and 19, is, this is not the first time, nor is it the last time that Paul speaks about sin's consequences in this letter. But as he turns the corner, and this is what we want to zero in on this morning in verses 20 to 24, we see the other side of the coin. That was what our life was before Christ. But now we see the difference that Christ has made made in verses 20 to 24. Instead of seeing the foolishness and the futility of the old man living for sin and self, in these verses, Paul exalts the righteousness and glory of the new man who lives for Christ and others. And friends, this, this is who we want to be. Verses 20 to 24 stand in razor sharp contrast to 17 to 19. It is so different. And that's what I want us to consider this morning. In, a few, in these four verses, five verses, Paul exalts the righteousness and the glory of the new self that lives for Christ and others. And, and the last time we talked about what it means to be the people of God, this is the picture of what it means to be called a child of God. And so we're going to break the text down into four, four parts this morning. In verses 20 to 21, we're going to see how we are educated in the school of Christ. In verse 22, we'll see how we laid aside the old self when we came to Christ. Verse, we're going to kind of skip verse 23, go to verse 24. We put on the new self. And then fourthly, we'll back up into verse 23, and we see how we are remade from the inside out. So we begin in verses 20 to 21. We see that the new man or the new woman has been educated in the school of Christ. This, this changeover from 17 to 19 is significant. Our old selves were those who walked around in the futility of our minds with hardened hearts, darkened understanding, deadened souls, in utter shamelessness. But look at verse 20. He says, but you did not learn Christ in this way. This is not what you learned. This is a really fascinating turn of a phrase here that he uses. In the New Testament, this, this verb to learn is used to learn about things. You can learn about doctrine. 
You can learn a lesson. You can learn by example and even learn from other peoples, such as Christ and God and so forth. But nowhere is it used to speak of learning a person. What is he talking about? When Paul speaks about learning Christ, he's not talking about like a bare factual learning. Instead, he's talking about experiential knowledge, knowing Christ personally. He's talking about their conversion to Christ when they came to know Christ as their Lord and their Savior. He goes on in verse 21, If indeed you have heard him and have been taught in him just as the truth is in Jesus. Not only have believers learned Christ, Paul assumes that they have heard him and they have been taught in him. So all of this language, the verbiage, the word pictures, the imagery, evokes the image of a school. And we as believers are all students. In this school, Christ is the subject that we're, he, amazingly, we're, he kind of mixes metaphors. In this school, Christ is the subject that we're studying. We're learning him, knowing him. But Christ is also the teacher whom we hear from. He speaks to us, obviously, through his word and by his spirit. And then we see Christ is the locale or the sphere in which we learn. We learn in him. In him is repeated. It speaks of the communion, this kind of giving and receiving, this mutual life we share in Christ and with, in connection with Christ. All of that is what he's kind of picturing in verses 20 to 21. Paul assumes, he assumes this to be true for his readers by the the nature of the the conditional statement. It's assumed. He says, you've studied Christ personally. You've heard from him powerfully through his word. You've been taught in communion with him. What he's saying here is this, you have been educated in the school of Christ as a believer. And then he ends by saying this, just as the truth is in Jesus. This word truth is understood as that which corresponds to reality. It's truth. It stands in contrast to what is false or deceptive. And he says Jesus is the embodiment of truth. He is the embodiment of truth. When you heard the word about Christ proclaimed through the gospel, the eyes of your heart came alive when he saved you. It came alive to the reality of your spiritual condition, and he went from being a savior to being your savior. He went from being a light to the light. He went from being a truth among many to being the truth, the only source of eternal life. Jesus is the truth incarnate. John chapter 1, verse 14, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory. Glory is of the one and only begotten of the Father, full of grace and, what? Truth. Or John 14, verse 6, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And if indeed you have turned from your sin this morning and you've placed your faith in Christ, you're a new man, you're a new woman, and you have been educated in the school of Christ. He's the one you study. He's the one you hear from. He's the one in whom the sphere of your life operates. Paul goes on then in verses 22 to 24 to describe this teaching that we have received 
having been enrolled, I guess, in the school of Christ. And he does that in further detail. So I'm going to give us a further description of the new man as we look at 22 to 24. So we've been educated in the school of Christ. Secondly, we see the new man has laid aside the old self. This is what it means to be called a child of God. Verse 22, you have been taught in him, and he continues on after this little kind of apposition of of Jesus' incarnation of the truth. He says, you've been taught in him that in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lusts of deceit. So what were we taught? When we entered the school of Christ, we were taught once and for all to lay aside the old self. That's what coming to Christ entails. To, To lay aside captures the idea of putting away and storing you know, kind of digging a hole and burying and letting it go. In the present context here, it has the idea of putting off and laying aside clothing. In contrast to verse 24, where Paul speaks about putting on a new person. And the the tense of the infinitive to put off, which Paul uses here, points not to a continual work of turning away from sin that you and I experience day by day as believers as we fight the good fight of faith, but to a decisive moment in which we were born again. I think this this, this passage is misunderstood at times. This is a decisive putting off. In the school of Christ, when we came to Christ, we were taught that we have we must put off and lay aside the old person, all of it, all of it. To be born again by grace and through faith requires the old self to be put off like an old garment. This is what Christ meant when he says, repent, repent and believe. To repent and believe is to change, is a change of mind toward Christ and one's own sin that is so complete, it is so total that it results in a change of direction. That's what repentance is. And as we saw in chapter, as you see in chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, that ability to even shed the old self by repentance and faith, that is a gift of God's grace as well. You can't do that on your own, even though we are called to do that. We don't take credit for our repentance. God, the Holy Spirit, he... He brings conviction in the heart and allowed us to see our sin for what it really was. And he illuminated our mind and our will and our affections. And and now we, we were able to delight in Christ for who he really is. That was a decisive turning. And when God gave you the gift of new spiritual life, Paul says, for the first time in your life, you were able to shed the old self, which was being corrupted in accordance with the lusts of deceit. When I was in fifth grade, I went to a Boy Scout summer camp for a week in the, in the darkness of, uh, uh, of uh, Florida, South Florida, in the woods. And... Um, my mom packed me six changes of clothes for the week. It was, it was, you know, basically it was a Sunday to Saturday kind of thing. When I came back home, I had six changes of clothes. Because as a young 10-year-old, I wasn't too keen on changing or showering around other folks in the woods. And because of that, I was more or less wearing the same clothes the entire week. When I came home, my, coat, my clothes were literally corrupting my body. <laughs> That's the picture Paul paints here of the old man. 
The old self was in a state of continual degradation from deceitful lusts. It was constantly being corrupted by deceptive desires, which promised fullness of life, but could not deliver. But when I came to Christ, and when you came to Christ for the first time, you're able to take off that rotting garment to, that each and every one of us had been carrying around with us from conception and to be set free from sin's deceitful lusts. That's the picture here. It is a decisive setting aside of the old, laying aside of the old self. In the school of Christ, we learned to set aside the old self. And we also learned, thirdly, that we were to put on the new self. Look at verse 24. This verb, to put on the new self, to put on also indicates a decisive putting on that took place at the moment of conversion. It's looking at the action holistically, not progressively, not continuatively, holistically. It was done. And we didn't just put off the old man shedding the old self. We immediately put on the new self, which Paul says has been created in the likeness of God in righteousness and holiness of the truth. This, um, this verb to create in the New Testament, always speaks of God's creative work in the spiritual realm. And it's in the passive, in that God is the one doing the creating here. It's, we're not the, we're not the uh, subject of the action, we're the, we're the object, we're the recipient of the action of his creative work. God created man without sin. When Adam sinned, all who followed him were corrupted by that sin. And the gospel is preached as it is preached and it takes root in the heart, the Spirit of God recreates us in the image and the likeness of God. He makes us alive together with Christ. He says, we put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created by God in righteousness and holiness of the truth. Makes me think of 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 17. Paul says, if anyone's in Christ, he's what? A new creature, brand new. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. He's describing this, this decisive putting off and putting on that, uh, that he talks about here as he writes to the Ephesians. When you were saved, the old self passed away. The new things have come into being. And the implication for our lives then as believers is this. You, if you're in Christ, are a new creation by his doing. And now we must live like it all the time, in every sphere, in every aspect of our lives. Our old self with its corrupting influence, its deceitful lust, that person is dead. That person is buried with Christ. You've put on the new self that has been created in righteousness and holiness in the truth. Righteousness here has to do with our relating to one another. Holiness kind of draws our gaze to do with those things that relate to God. In other words, in every realm, in every sphere, we are new creatures in Christ, horizontally, vertically, diagonally, whatever direction you want to go. We are new creatures in Christ. In the school of Christ, we learn that the new man has laid aside the old self. They have put on the new self. But what about now? What about now? And that leads us to our fourth and final heading 
In the school of Christ, we learn that the new man is being remade, or the new woman is being remade from the inside out. Look at verse 23. Paul kind of pivots uh, and, and adds this little aside in verse 23. That's why we're kind of going out of order here. But he, he's talking about what happens now. He says, uh, you have put aside the old self and all of its corruption, that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind. Now, the distinction between 23 and 22 is that the verb in verse 23 is in the present tense meaning that this is an ongoing, continual work of God that is happening in us right now. It's, it's intentionally, uh, uh, he's describing it in all of its uh, progressiveness as it's, un, as it's unfolding. And, and it's, again, it's passive, meaning that God's the one doing the renewing of our minds. If you look back at verse 17, the old man was decaying on account of the futility of the mind. So it makes sense that the reversal of this process must begin where? With the renewal of our mind. The renewal of the spirit of our minds is only possible as the spirit of God takes up residence within us. We are born anew. The spirit makes our spirit alive and indwells us so that we understand the things of God. And not just understand them intellectually, although that's certainly the case, but believe them and trust in them. The result then is a new way of thinking that results in a new way of living. You remember Paul focused on the heart here. People act as they think. So if they're going to act differently, they must first think differently. But only God can change the heart. That is why there must be a change of mind, a change of heart, before we can counsel with believers with unbelievers, they must come to Christ. Anything else will fail. Unless they have a new heart that thinks differently, they will never consistently walk in obedience to the word of God. The Christian life now is the ongoing process then for the believer of being renewed in the spirit of your mind. It's this process, this is sanctifying process by which we are set apart from sin and set increasingly set apart to God in our practical lives. We've been declared not guilty, justified, righteous in Christ, but the sanctification, the ongoing process, that unfolds through the renewing of our minds. That is also God's work in us, and yet we are to work it out by our own effort in, in, in concert with the Holy Spirit who works with us. That is a co-op, sanctification is a cooperative effort for the believer. It is not let go and let God. It is intentionally disciplined. The, the spiritual life of a believer must be disciplined. Disciplined, Paul says, the spirit of your mind. How do we do that? Well, among other things, we study and and study and obey the word of God. John 17, verse 17, sanctify them in your truth. Your word is truth. Or Ephesians 6, just a couple chapters over in verse 17, he says, take up the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. We, we need to study God's word. We need to take it in. And then we need to obey it. 
Secondly, we pray through the discipline of prayer. We, our spirit falls in line with the spirit of God and we pray according to his will. This is part of the believer's armor. With all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the spirit. And with this in view, be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. So, so prayer becomes a huge part of the renewing of our mind. We, we grow in Christ and are remade from the inside out through the mutual ministry of God's people in his church. You, cannot, you will never find a mature Christian who's not consistently committed to the body of Christ. I promise you that. They may have all kinds of intellectual knowledge, all kinds of zeal, but that zeal is going to be limited in scope and they will have glaring weaknesses in their spiritual life. I promise you. God's people become the means by which God renews our minds as we encourage one another, admonish one another, help one another, press on toward Christ-likeness. The believers in the church, uh, the, 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 the struggle of relationships in the church, that is a sanctifying thing in, its, in itself. I have to come back to this all the time. I have to be reminded what, when, when things are difficult, in, is when relationships become challenging, I have to step back and understand God is trying to work something in me. And I need to, instead of complaining about why isn't this person doing this or why, why is this become an issue or why, is these, why are these things going on? But God is trying to work something in me. He's working patience in me. He's working uh, love, greater love for the brethren in me. And he's the same for you. So we can't pull back. We can't restrain ourselves from the mutual ministry of God's people in his church. All of these things position ourselves for the renewing of our mind. It's like trimming a sail. Any of you gone on a boat, ever tried to sail? You ha- if, the, if the wind is going one direction and your sail is not trimmed properly, you're not going to go anywhere. And so the, the Spirit blows where it wills. God is working in us. We must trim the sail of our heart to study his word, pray, be committed to the body of Christ, serve one another in love, and then God will take us from where we are to where we need to be. That's how it happens. And one of the strongest evidences of new birth is an appetite for the truth. You hear it over and over again. Every testimony, it seems like, it's like, wow, when they got saved, when that person got saved, they wanted to know the truth. They had an appetite for the truth, hunger for the truth. Why is that? Because God is renewing their minds, and their minds can't get enough of his truth. When you see someone who's suddenly hungry for the word of God, and I don't mean just intellectually. Some people use the word of God like a cudgel to beat other people down. I mean they really want to know the word of God and obey it. When you see that and they're earnest to pray and they're eager to be with God's people, that is the strongest, strongest evidence that you're looking at a new man or a new woman. And when that's lacking, that is cause for grave concern. The new man the new woman is the one who is being remade by God from the inside out. There's a reason that our calendar counts years from a midpoint. Have you ever thought about that? It's kind of a peculiar thing. The Jewish calendar counts years from what it considers to be the date of creation, and it adds one year after another. Chinese calendar does something uh, similar. <clears throat> 
But the Christian calendar, the calendar that pretty much the entire world uses now, begins counting years from when Jesus Christ was born on the earth. And it goes out two separate directions, which is kind of unusual, both forward and backward. Forwards, we refer to uh, it, most believers anyway, not the world at large anymore, but they refer to it as A.D., right? Anno Domini, the year of the Lord. And it looks backwards, we refer to B.C., which is before Christ. Why is that? Why do we start counting at some point between the beginning and the end? The reason, I think, is significant. By the very way we mark time, we are testifying to the fact that Jesus Christ is the dividing line in human history. He's the dividing line of history, and everything that has happened or will ever happen in the created universe does so either before Christ or after Christ. Whatever happens, happens in reference to Christ. And just as Christ is the dividing line of human history, Jesus Christ is the dividing line for every one of us who has repented of our sins and put our faith in him for salvation. Before Christ, you walked in the futility of your mind, hardened in the, uh, in, in, the, in the darkness of your heart, in your understanding, dead in your soul, living a life of utter shamelessness before God and man. But after the light of the gospel dawns in the heart, you were educated in the school of Christ. You laid aside the old man and old woman with their corruption. You put on the new man created in righteousness and holiness. And now each one of us are being remade from the inside out. And in the middle stands the Lord Jesus Christ, crucified, buried, and raised. And if there's no separation from living for sin and self to living for Christ and others, then Jesus Christ is not standing in the gap for you this morning. But if he has, and I pray that he is, he's the dividing line of your life and you must walk in holiness because you are a new creation. The old things have passed away, and behold, new things have come. We have been created, as chapter 2 says, verse 10. We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would, what? Walk in them. This is what it means to be, this is what it means to be a child of God, to be his beloved son or daughter. And so I just want us to consider that this morning as we kind of focus our minds on who are the people of God. We said that they're they're holy people. They're a sanctified people. And this reminder from Paul reiterates those realities. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have made us anew in your image. Again, you've not only created us in your image, but you have recreated the believer in the image of Christ, and we are to imitate him in every way. Uh, And we sometimes, Lord, just being reminded that that's who we are is what is necessary for us to be able to um, get back on track, to be running the course with endurance. I pray, Lord, that if there's any here this morning who have not come to that decisive point, they have not laid aside the old self, and they have not put on the the new self, if they are not being renewed in the spirit of their mind, that they would bow the knee before you today. And if any has wandered afield in their 
and they're not sure which direction they need to go, may they set their gaze on you and run to win. Lord, we pray that you would make us a sanctified people, a glorified people for your namesake. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening. We hope you've been encouraged by today's message. For more information or more messages like this, visit us at cascadesbiblechurch.com or subscribe via your favorite podcast app.